So the Kohanim in the Bet HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple, first the Mishkan, the movable temple in um, the desert. Later there was a temple called the Mishkan also in Shiloh. And later there's going to be a permanent temple, of course, in Jerusalem. In fact, there were two temples in Jerusalem that lasted together for close to 900 years. And... um, of course, we believe that there will be a future temple in Jerusalem with the coming of Moshiach. So the Kohanim, who are male descendants of Aaron, we did a class in the past about the Kohanim. The Kohanim had a rule, they had special clothing they had to wear in the Bet HaMikdash. What was the special clothing that they wore? So the Kohen had to wear shorts, linen shorts, that, um, shorts. Then covering that, they would have a linen robe, a white linen robe that would cover them from shoulder down to their ankles, cover their full body um, with a white linen robe. It was somewhat of, it was tight around their body. It wasn't supposed to be loose, but a uh, tight white linen robe. Then in addition, they wore a tunic on their head, which was essentially, it was a hat, but it was made with a long um, sash, Essentially, they would wrap around and around their heads, um, turning it into a hat. Those three things, the shorts, the robe, and the tunic, were all made of linen, white linen. And then they they would have a belt. The belt was also a very long sash. The Talmud says the belt was 30 cubits, or about 45 feet long, that they would wrap around and around probably many, many, many times. They would wrap around them. The belt, the Talmud says, was made of wool and linen. It was made of three different color wool, blue wool, purple wool, and red wool, along with linen. Now we know that the Torah forbids us from wearing clothing made up of wool and linen. We did a class in the previously about shatnez, which is the prohibition of wearing clothing made up of wool and linen. However, the same Torah that prohibited wool and wearing wool and linen told us over here the Kohanim should wear a belt made of wool and linen. And the Torah does that in many cases. Classic example is we know we're not allowed to do operations on Shabbat because we're not allowed to let blood on Shabbat, one of our 39 prohibitions on Shabbat. And yet the Torah tells us that we should circumcise our children on the eighth day if a circumcision falls out if a child is born on Shabbat, eight days later will be Shabbat, and so we do circumcision on Shabbat, even though the Torah says not to, it made its own exceptions. God makes his own rules. So that's what the Kohanim wore, they wore these three linen clothing, the trousers, the pants, the uh, shorts um, that went down to their knees, they wore a robe, a white linen robe that went all the way down to their ankles, and uh, a, a hat made of white linen, and a belt. Now, they didn't wear anything on their feet. They were barefoot. They walked around the temple barefoot. In fact, the Talmud points out that the, st- the floor of the temple was stone, which means it would be cold, especially in the winter. It gets fairly cold in Jerusalem. It even snows. They just had a snowstorm about a week ago um, in Jerusalem. So there is... Um, it does get cold, and yet they would walk barefoot. They would have a fire on the, in a side room that they could go to warm themselves up. When they got too cold, they would walk barefoot in the temple. Today, I should point out, in most places, 
we do not walk into the synagogue barefoot. Um, and that is because um, it is disrespectful today in our current culture to walk around barefoot. And since we have to dress respectfully for God, Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law says, that in those places um, where respectful people, when you dress respectfully, you wear shoes, you're required to wear shoes when coming into a synagogue. There are places today, such as in the Middle East, where it is still respectful to walk around barefoot, and in those places, indeed, you can walk into a synagogue barefoot. Regardless, in the temple, we were told explicitly that the, the Kohenim should wear nothing other than these four clothing. Yes, Hillary. I'm not aware of such a thing. I don't believe there's any... Hillary asked, for those listening online, is there, a, is there a thing not to walk barefoot when your parents are alive? I've never heard of such a thing. I don't know. Uh, if you say there is, I take your word for it. Okay. I'm unaware of such a thing, but if you say so, I will take your word for it. Um, in general, we are forbidden from going into a synagogue or praying while we are barefoot because it is disrespectful. Unless you live in those places in the Middle East or those places in the world where it is normal to walk around barefoot, um, including in parts of Israel. If you're in the more rural towns of Israel, everybody walks around with um, thongs or slipper or uh, of some sort, barefoot, and uh, then it would not be an issue because that's the respectful way of dressing. Uh, but in the, in the temple, they were barefoot. So now, in addition to the four clothing that the regular Kohen wore, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, first Aaron, and then after him, there was always a Kohen Gadol, the high priest would wear those four things, plus they would wear four more things. What were the four other things that they would wear? Firstly, they would wear a blue wool cloak over the linen white cloak, they, uh, the, over the linen white um, um, tunic, they would wear a blue white a blue cloak um, that would go also down to below their knees, and at the bottom of this cloak was were bells, bells and little woolen balls hanging from the bottom of the cloak. So whenever the Kohen Gadol would walk around, everybody would hear him coming. It would make noise. The bells would ring. Um, there would be these bells at the bottom. The Kohen Gadol also wore a golden plate that went on his forehead and was tied with woolen threads, blue woolen threads, behind his head, would tie to the back of his head. And it was a golden forehead plate that would sit on his forehead. And on that plate would have the words, Kodesh la Hashem, holy to Hashem. And he would wear that always on his forehead. He had a hat. And on his forehead, he had tefillin, of course, in front of the hat. In those days, they wore the Jewish men wore tefillin all day. We've stopped doing that. That's a subject of its own. Wrapped around their arm and head all day. They used to during temple period. They used to wear it all day. So the Kohen Gadol would wear, the high priest would wear tefillin on his head. And then he would have with the hat behind it. 
and then a forehead plate on his forehead that would have the words Kodesh la Hashem, holy to Hashem. In addition, so he had this blue robe with the bells at the bottom, bells and little woolen bowls at the bottom. And then he would wear this forehead plate. And then he would wear two other things that were connected called the Choshen and Aphod. The Choshen and the Aphod. What are these two things? What is the Aphod and what is the Choshen? So before we begin to describe it, just we should be clear, we have a, a description of all of these items in the Torah itself in this week's Parsha. We also have what we call Midrashim, or oral tradition, that gives us further description of these items. And yet, the temple has not stood for 2,000 years. We have not actually had a temple. So although we do have detailed descriptions of the buildings of the temple, the various furniture that they had in the temple, the clothing that the Kohanim wore, it's hard to know exactly what it looked like because we haven't seen it, nor has anyone we know ever seen it because it goes back 2,000 years, which is dozens of generations. So it's been so long ago that we have written description of it, but we don't have any pictures of it nor do we have the originals, so it's hard to know with all these things exactly what they looked like. And yet, we do have some description Um, based on the Midrashim and based on commentaries. um, We can piece together what these things look like. So, And there is some debate among commentaries over fine details in the particular items, both in the temple, in the Mishkan, of what the Kohanim wore. There is some debate over the fine details, but we do have a general idea of what these things look like. So Rashi, without drawing a picture, he's our classical commentary. We once did a class on Rashi. He lived about a thousand years ago in France. Um, And he describes the aphod as follows. He says the aphod was a piece of material that covered the back from waist down. So it was a piece of material, Rashi says, like an apron, that covered the back from waist down, like usually you'd wear an apron, a waist apron, that goes from waist down in your front. This was an apron that went from waist down in the back. Rashi says it looked like the apron that the French noble women in his days would wear when they would ride on horses. Apparently, they would ride on the horse. They didn't want their legs to brush up against the horse, um, to rub against the horse. So they would wear this material that went like an apron, but backwards that went on their back from ways down. And that way it went underneath their legs when they sat on the horse and their legs that way didn't brush up against the horse. So this apron would have a belt in the front that would tie it in the front. It was called the Cheshev Ha'ifot. It also had two straps that would go up from the waist, up the Cohen's back, and come up over his shoulders. So that is what the aphod looked like. Then, connected, connected to the aphod, on the top of the aphod, I should mention, were two stones, 
And on the, each of these stones were engraved the names of six of the 12 tribes. Each stone had six tribes. And each, so one stone on the right shoulder strap, and one stone was on the left shoulder strap. So one stone had six tribes, and the other stone had six tribes. The aphod, then with shoulders, with the shoulder straps of the aphod, then had golden chains hanging down from it in the front of the Kohen that connected to the Choshen, the other piece of clothing that the Kohen wore. The Choshen is usually translated as the breastplate. Breastplate meaning a plate that went over the Kohen's chest. What was the Choshen? So the Choshen was a square fabric, a zeret, squared. A zeret is about nine inches, so about nine inches by nine inches. Little square piece of fabric. It was actually folded over, so it was made longer, folded over into a square. And this square hung from these chains that connected to the shoulder straps of the aphod. It was also connected at the bottom with golden, with blue threads to the aphod in the back, to the back of the apron. It was connected. And so it kind of sat like a single piece connected to the aphod on top and on the sides that the Kohen would then be able to slip over his shoulder. And the aphod and Choshen were basically a single garment, were never separated. They were always together, always connected. The Torah says you should never separate them. On the Choshen itself, on this plate that went in front of him, this square material, on this, on this square material were 12 gold settings in four rows, three settings in each row, three, 12 golden settings, like you would set for stones or diamonds, like you have a setting on your ring, a gold setting, to be able to hold the diamond. So there would be 12 gold settings in four rows, three in each row, and in each of those settings would go a stone. And on each stone was engraved the name of one of the 12 tribes. So here is a picture. Let's see if we can see it for the camera here. Here is a picture made by the Temple Institute in Jerusalem of what it would have looked like. Here you can see the apron on the back, the straps that go up, there's a belt in the front that ties over here. And here is the breastplate connected with golden chains to the shoulder straps and connected with blue threads to the aphode. So that's what it would have looked like. And it would have basically slipped over his shoulder. And then you would tie. This is the belt over here is tied and untied. He would then tie the belt. And that is how the Kohen Gadol would wear it. He has the head on his head, as you can see. The forehead plate, the golden forehead plate, if you can see it, and the blue, to the blue robe um, underneath with the bells. So that is what the Kohen would have looked like. Again, this is what we are imagining. We don't know exactly what it looked like because we never saw it. This is based on the description that we were given. We were never actually given a picture of the original, we don't have a copy of the original, we don't know exactly, but that is, an that is what we imagine it would have looked like. 
The Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would wear it every day in the temple. Yes. Every day in the temple. Only in the temple. When they left the temple, they could wear their regular clothing. Yes. They, when they left the temple, when they left the temple, they wore their regular clothing. Only when they served in the temple, did the service in the temple, the Kohen Gadol, only the high priest would wear this special clothing. Yes. Yes, yes, I'm going to get to that. Yes, yes, very good question. What kind of stones were they? What kind of colors were they? We're going to get to all those details. Very good question. What were the ephod? So we gave you the description of the shape of the ephod and the choshen. But what was the material made out of? So the Torah tells us that it was made, the fabric was made of five different types of threads. It was made, firstly, of golden threads. There would be golden threads. Now, the way you make golden threads, the Torah tells us how they made it. They took gold and they banged it very, very thin. Gold can get extremely thin. They would bang it very, very thin. And then they would take a knife and they would cut threads from the, or strands, thin strands from the thin gold. And then they would spin it, like you would spin wool to spin it into a thread. They would then spin it into a thread. What they then, they would take, then the gold thread would be mixed with blue wool threads. And the way they would mix it is they would have seven blue wool threads, thin threads, and a single gold thread that they would then spin together, making one thicker thread. If you've ever seen a thread, if you've ever done sewing, you'll notice that the thread itself is made of multiple smaller threads. The reason for that is if you spin a thick thread, it can come apart. But if you spin multiple thin threads and then spin those thin threads together, it's much more durable. It holds much more. That's the way threads are made today. And you actually you can untwist them and you'll see the multiple threads. Um, and so they, had, they made seven thin um, blue wool threads and spun them together into a single thread along with a golden thread as a single thread. Then they made the same, they made purple wool threads, seven purple wool threads th spun together with a golden thread. Then they made seven red wool threads that they would spin together with a golden thread in order to make a, certain, a single thread. And then they would make linen, seven linen threads spun together with a golden thread. So it was made out of those four threads, um, the blue wool and gold, purple wool and gold, red wool and gold, and linen and gold, each of which were made of seven wool or linen threads and a single gold thread. And then those together were spun or woven into the fabric that they used for both the ephod and the choshen. So it was a wool, linen, and gold fabric. Um, it would have been colorful. 
because it had the multiple color threads. So it would have had that color in it, blue, it would have had a little, little gold in it, um, blue, um, red, uh, purple, red, and white from the linen. Now, sewn into the front of the breastplate, as we mentioned, were these 12 gold settings in four rows. In each of the gold settings were placed a different stone, and each stone had one of the names of the 12 tribes. The Torah lists exactly which stones should be placed on the Choshen, what those 12 stones are. And yet we have a challenge since we don't, haven't had a Choshen, since the temple was destroyed almost 2,000 years ago, and Jews have not really been living in that area and have not been stone experts, we have struggled to identify exactly what those 12 stones are. We have a handful of translations of the various stones. For one, we have original Aramaic translations of the Torah. The earliest translations of the Torah were Aramaic, going back to the period of the Second Temple. We have, of course, the Unculus translation, which is found on the side of every Chumash, every Torah book that you open, has the Unculus Aramaic translation, which is the most common, the standard Aramaic translation. But there are many other Aramaic translations that we still have, um, copies of, and um, that uh, there are various Aramaic translations that translate the names of the stones into Aramaic. Doesn't help us that much if we don't speak Aramaic. There were also, in Second Temple period, translations done into Greek. Most notably, there's a book called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a, the translation of the 70. We once did a class on it. We spoke about the translations of the Torah, where 70 sages were forced by Ptolemy, the king of Egypt, to translate the Torah. And so we have, and so we have that translation. The Christian Bible is based on the Septuagint. Um, and so we have, but they also translate the names of the stones into Greek. Later, Many, many years later, um, after the destruction of the temple, once uh, after the Arab conquest, when Ar the Arabs controlled much of the civilized world, and much, much of the Mediterranean, and most Jews in the world for some time lived in Arabic lands, we have a number of Arabic translations. We have from Rav Sadia Gaon, who was a great, um, a great uh, Jewish leader uh, from the 900s. We have from Rabbeinu Bechaya, who was from the 10 hundreds, also gives us translations into Arabic of the stones. So we do have various translations of the stones, of the names of the stones. The challenge is that not all the translations match. They're different, there's variations. We have some descriptions in Midrashim of the colors of the stones. Again, it doesn't all match, which makes it very hard to know exactly what it was. The Midrash tells us, interestingly, then later in the book of Numbers, the Torah says that every tribe should have a flag. Every tribe should have its own flag. And the um, color of each flag, the Midrash tells us, the Torah doesn't tell us what is on the flag. 
the Midrash tells us that the color of each flag is the same as the color of the stone of the breastplate that had their name on it. So, this, and the Midrash lists the colors of each stone and the colors of the flags. So the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, which is an institute that has made many of the items for the temple and studies the details of the temple, um, has some guesses about what those stones are. I'll share with you what they came up with. But again, there is some debate as exactly what those stones actually are. So here's what they came up with. They said the tribe of Ruvain is a carnelian, which is a red stone. Carnelian, okay. The tribe of Shimon is a topaz, which is a green stone. The tribe of Levi is an emerald, which was made up of multiple colors. Emerald could come in different colors, but it was white, black, and red. The tribe of Yehuda was a turquoise. Apparently, it's not just a color, but that's actually a stone. Um, that is the color turquoise. The tribe of Yisachar was a sapphire, a blue sapphire. The tribe of Zevulun was a quartz, which is white or clear. The tribe of Dan was a stone called sodalite, which is blue. The tribe of Naphtali was a stone called agate, agate which is white or cream. The tribe of God was a stone called amethyst, amethyst, amethyst which is black and white. Um, the stone of Asher uh, was called ac- aquagmire, aquamarie, sorry, aquamarie, which is clear. It's like water, it's clear. Jo- sorry? Pale? Yeah, it's very pale blue. Pale blue, okay. Um, Joseph's stone was onyx, which is onyx, which is black. And Benjamin's stone was an opal, which is a mix of many colors. So each of the tribes, had, each of the stones had the tribes' names engraved on them. In addition to the names of the tribes, the first stone that had the name of Reuben on it also had the names of our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. The final stone had the letters Shiftei Ka, the tribes of God. And these letters were important because the names of the tribes don't have all the Hebrew alphabet in them. There are two letters missing in the names of the tribes. There is no Chet and there is no Tet. But in the name Yitzchak, there is a chet. And in the word shiftei, tribes, there is a tet. So with those names and with those words, they had all, 12, all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we'll soon see why that's very important. Now there's some debate as to whether the stones were engraved or the letters stuck out, like the letters of a stamp. The Torah describes it, engraved like a stamp. In a stamp, the letters stick out, right? You engrave around it, and the letters stick out so that when you stamp, right, you get the letters. Um, the Talmud gives us an interesting 
perspective of what the letters made, were made of. The Talmud says that the letters were not engraved and there was, no, um, there was nothing missing. Rather, the letters were just cracked. They were cracked into the shape of, they were cracked into the shape of the letters without anything actually missing, without anything being engraved. How do you crack the shape of the letters? So the Talmud tells us that when they built the temple, they used a special worm called the Shamir worm. And this worm, you would draw on, the, on stone and put the worm on the stone. The worm would move along the line on its own and it would crack the stone. And that's how they cut stone for the temple. Also how they cut, the, how they cracked open the letters, um, the shapes of the letters in perfect shape. They did that with this special Shamir worm. So the Talmud tells us we don't have any such worm that we know of that has such properties. It's hard to imagine how a worm would be strong enough to crack stone, but uh, that's what our traditions tell us. Any questions? So we mentioned that the Choshen was folded. It was a breastplate. It was a square that went over your chest, over the Cohen's chest, with the four rows of 12 stones, but it was folded. What went inside that fold? So the Torah says that inside that fold was the Urim V'tumim. What is Urim V'tumim? Urim V'tumim translates as light and complete. What was the Urim V'tumim, the light and complete? So our oral tradition tells us that it was simply a piece of parchment. On that parchment, Moses wrote God's name. We don't know which name of God. Maybe a name we don't even know of. We don't know. But God's name was written on this piece of parchment exactly as instructed by God. Nobody knows what was on this parchment. It was placed inside the fold and left in there. This Urim V'tumim, this piece of parchment, gave the Choshen special miraculous powers. Whenever people or leaders had questions of God, whenever they wanted to ask a question, God would answer them through this Choshen, through this plate that the Kohen wore, God would answer their questions. And so it was similar to the, the Greeks had oracles, but we had this first, and I'm not to compare the two, but this was something that you can ask questions and God would answer the question. What they would do is, when any, whenever people or Jewish leaders had a question of God, they would stand behind the Kohen Gadol, the Kohen Gadol would stand in front of them, they would stand behind him, and they would whisper their question. Like the way we pray, where we whisper our prayers, or when we say the Amida prayer, we whisper it, we don't say it out loud so nobody around us can really hear it, but we do mouth the words, right? We do say the words, but very quietly. So they would whisper the question, so God can hear it. And then the Kohen Gadol would look at his breastplate 
and he would see the letters sticking out. Those letters would stick out, would jut out, and those would contain the answer. And he would then have to organize the letters to make a word out of it to figure out what the answer was. There's another opinion in the Talmud that the letters would actually jump out and order themselves that he could actually read words in front of him. And so that way he was able to give them an answer to their questions. So the urim v'tumim means light up and complete because it would light up and give them complete the answer, complete their question, so that they, wouldn't know, they would now know what God wants them to do. So how did they use this urim v'tumim? So generally it was only used for big national questions that affected an entire tribe, or the entire people, or the king, the leaders of the people. It wasn't used just, you know, someone had a little question, should I, where should I go for, what should I eat for dinner? Or where should I go on vacation? Or should I do a particular medical procedure? It wasn't for those kind of questions. It was used for big, major Questions affecting the Jewish people, affecting the leadership, affecting, um, affecting tribes, going to war, um, and other major things. So now, as long as Moses was around, they had no use for the Urim V'tumim. They did not need it. Because Moses had a very unique relationship with God that no human being ever had. Whenever he had a question, he would ask God and God would respond. There were prophets later that God would speak to, and we did a class in the past about prophecy. There were prophets later that God would speak to, but it wasn't that whenever they turned to God and asked him, God would answer them. God would appear to them when he chose to. They didn't get an answer whenever they wanted. So the prophets would get, so after Moses' death, they, when they had a question of God and they needed an answer, they would use the Urim V'tumim. The most important use of the Urim V'tumim in our history was to divide the land of Israel. When the people of Israel entered the promised land and they conquered it from the Canaanites, now they had to give each tribe an area, region within the land. How did they choose which tribe goes where? So they did two different things. Firstly, they had a lottery. They divided the land into 12. They put the names of the tribes in one box. They put the names of the various areas in a different box. And they picked up the name of the tribe along with the name of the area and matched them. They used a lottery. But they didn't only use a lottery. They also used the Urim V'tumim. The tribe would stand in front of El-Azhar and would ask what land they should get. And the name of the area that they're going to get would come out from the letters of the Chosha and it would give them the answer. That's how they knew which land each tribe would get. And the answer, what came up in the lottery, was the same as what came up from the Urim V'tumim. Miraculously. Then once they figured out which tribe gets which area, then they had to figure out within each tribe there were subfamilies, there were clans within the tribe. Each clan, what area within the tribe they would get, they went through the same process. Then within each clan, each individual would get their own plot of land. They had to figure out 
who would get what plot of land. All of this was done through a double process. They used the lottery, and they also asked the Urim Vetumim. That way everybody knew it was coming from God. Nobody could dispute the results. After the death of Joshua, they continued to use the Urim Vetumim throughout the books of Shoftim, Judges, and the book of Samuel. We find it used again and again. The first time it's recorded to, be, to have been used other than dividing up the land is after the death of Joshua. There were still pockets of resistance from the Canaanites that they had not yet captured. And Israel wanted to go and capture the rest of the land. But they weren't sure Joshua wasn't around. Joshua had led the battle. Which Joshua was gone now? Which tribe should lead them into battle? Who should be in charge? So they asked the Orim Vitomim and they got for who that was. Um, Elazar was the high priest at the time, the son of Aaron. And they got the answer that Judah should lead them into battle. And indeed Judah led them into battle. And their tribal chieftain, the leader of their tribe, who at this time was Atniel ben Kenaz, became the Shofet, the leader of all of Israel. Another issue at the beginning of the book of Judges that came up was the tribe of Dan got the most fertile land in the land of Israel. They got the land, um, today it's called Gush Dan. Um, It's the area where, um, along the coast, um, around where Tel Aviv is today, and they got land along the coast, but it was very, very fertile, the most fertile land in Israel. But because the land was divided, not not by area, but by value, the people in the tribe of Dan got the smallest plots because it was the most valuable land. They got small plots. They didn't like having small plots. They wanted bigger plots. So they came to, what do you do? They didn't know what to do. So they came to the Kohen Gadol and they asked the Urim Vatumim what they should do. And they got the answer that they were given permission to capture land north of Israel north of Israel, um, north of what they had already captured, they could capture more land. And so half the tribe of Dan moved to northern Israel and they captured land from Canaanites that had not yet been captured north of Israel. And they extended the land of Israel further north, getting land over there as well. Dan from then on was split into two different areas. Later at the end, sorry? it would be deep into what is Lebanon today, yes. Later, there was a Jewish civil war, very tragic story, maybe the most tragic story in our history, between the tribe of Benjamin and the other tribes. The other tribes weren't sure if they should go to war against Benjamin. Again, they consulted with the Urim Vetumim. They consulted with the high priest with the breastplate to see if they should go to war and were given permission to go to war. In the book of Samuel, when the prophet Samuel chose the first king of Israel, King Saul, he used the Urim Vetumim in order to choose who should be the king. Why did he use the Urim Vetumim? Because everybody knew that the Urim Vetumim was the word of God. And so that way, everybody, if everybody knew the word, Urim Vetumim was the word of God, that way was more than, was trusted by the people, probably more than just a prophecy. Um... 
Therefore, he would use it, he used it in order to choose King Saul as king. Later, King Saul himself used it, asking if he should go to war or not. Later, there was a very tragic event. At a certain point, David, who was Saul's son-in-law, next king of Israel, had a fallout with Saul. Saul was told by God that somebody else would, God would take away his kingdom and give it to somebody else. Saul suspected correctly that it would be his son-in-law David who would take over his kingdom. And he therefore was determined to kill David. And David was forced to flee and for some time was on the run with a band of followers um, <coughs> roaming through the deserts and the mountains <coughs> in order to um, <coughs> not get caught by King Saul. At one point, David received help from the Kohanim in Nov. Nov was where the temple, the Mishkan, was at the time. And the Kohanim there, including Achimelech, the high priest of Israel, and the other Kohanim had helped David a little. They didn't realize that David was running away from Saul. They had meant well. They helped David. King Saul, when he heard about it, was enraged. And in a very tragic event, King Saul destroyed the temple and killed Achimelech, the high priest, and the other Kohanim. Evyatar, who was the son of Achimelech, managed to escape the slaughter, and he managed to take with him the clothing of his father, the high priest, including the chosha and the breastplate, with the urim v'tumim, with that secret parchment inside. And so he ran. Where did he go? He was wanted. He hadn't done anything wrong, but as a son of the high priest that the king had killed, he was wanted, and so he ran to David and joined David's band. But he had the choshen, he had the breastplate with him. And so David used it to ask questions about going different places, going to war at different points to battle. He battled the Amalekites and others, um, the Philistines, <clears throat> even while he was on the run. And so he asked different questions from the choshen um, as well. Later, David used it throughout his reign. Um, he asked questions from the high priest using this Orim V'tumim. And it appears to have been used throughout the first temple period that used the Orim V'tumim. Whenever they had a big question, they would go to the high priest who wore the chosh and the breastplate with the Orim V'tumim inside, with his parchment inside. And they would ask the questions and God would give them their answer. The letters would stick out. The letters would, would pop out with the answer. Well, the, the high priest had it. Solomon was a king from the house of David. The Kohanim had it. The king or any Jewish leader was able to use it to ask a question relevant to the Jewish people. So anyone could use it. This lasted until the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. When the first temple was destroyed, everything within the temple was lost. Some things we know were hidden beforehand by one of the last kings of Israel, King Yoshiao, including the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know what happened to the breastplate that Moses had made with the Urim V'tumim. We don't know what happened to it. Maybe it was hidden. Maybe it was destroyed. We don't know. But we do know that 70 years later, when the people of Israel came back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem, 
to build the second temple. They didn't have it. So they made their own choshen, they made their own breastplate from scratch for the Kohen Gadol, for the high priest. They knew what the stones were at the time. They made it for the high priest to wear. But they did not have the parchment that Moses had written. They did not have it in the choshen. So it did not have that miraculous power that it had had from the days of Moses until the destruction of the first temple for close to a thousand years. They didn't have it anymore. They were not able to ask God questions and get answers like that. And since then, the second temple lasted for 420 years. Throughout that period, they did not have the Choshen. They did not have the Urim V'tumim. And so they had to deal. They also, the early second temple, the final prophets, Chagai Zachariah and Malachi died. They did not have prophecy either. So we no longer had a way to get answers from God. You have a question. We don't have a way to get answers directly from God. There was no automatic way to get answers. And in all the years since, we don't have a way to get answers directly from God. In the years since the destruction of the first temple, you have a question, should we go to war? Should we move to this place? Should we invest here? Should we do this? We don't have a way to get answers from God directly. You cannot directly ask God what I should do, and God will give you an answer. We don't have that option anymore. We don't have the urim v'tumim. It's not fair. Yes. It's not fair. So what do we do? So what do we That's a very good question. So what so what do we do? We can talk to God, we just don't get answered. The same way Moses did, at least not when we, that we hear it and know what it is. So but God still gave us ways. We don't have an easy way to get an answer, but God did give us a way to get it, give us an answer. And that is through his Torah. In the Torah that God gave us, God has instructions and directions for every part of life. And we can look into the Torah and study the Torah and within it find answers for various questions in life. And there are answers. And not to every question, like what to... So there are questions that are immaterial, like what are you going to wear in the morning or what are you going to make for dinner? To those, there may not be an easy answer. Those are the real hard questions of life that don't have an easy answer. However, to the more meaningful questions in life, uh, more important questions in life, the Torah does give us direction. The Torah does give us answers. For example, when someone has a medical question, what do you do? What do you do? So the Rebbe spoke about this. At one point, people would often ask him what to do. He says, what are you going to do if you can't ask me what to do? I'm not around anymore. What are you going to do? So what you do is you look at the Torah. The Torah says to follow medical advice. You ask your doctor what to do. One second. 
your doctor might not get it right. What do you do? Always ask if it's a major medical issue. Always get a second opinion in case your doctor got it wrong. Always make sure you get a second opinion. Except your doctor might be telling you the official medical thing that you're supposed to do. But it's not always the official medical directive is not always the best thing for you because they don't necessarily care about you or take your personal life into context. And therefore, it is important to ask a medical expert whom you know personally and have a personal relationship with. So the Torah gives us very clear instructions as to what to do when we have a medical question. Ask a doctor, get a second opinion, make sure at least one of those people is someone who knows you personally and can take the context of your life into account. Even then, we have different directions. If you're not sure if it's a 50-50 to do, not to do, we have rules, the Torah tells us. We have a rule, Shev Va'altase Adif. Better sit back and do nothing. You're not sure, should I do something, should I not do something? And you can't make up your mind, better do nothing. That's always the better response. Better sit back and let nature take its course. That's if... So, and the, the advice goes on and on and on um, with other things. I'm just giving you an example of medical for financial questions. We also have directions in the Torah exactly what we could do and what we should do. And so we look into the Torah. The Torah does give us directions for various parts of life, um, for interpersonal advice and other questions, how to deal with other people, the Torah gives us answers. So even if we may not have the Urim, the Tumim, God still gives us answers through the Torah. God finds us answers through the Torah. Kabbalah tells us that the word Choshen is made up of the letters Chet, Shin, and Nun. If we switch around those letters we can get the word nachash. Nachash means snake. Why? The snake, of course, was the cunning animal that convinced Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to eat from the tree of knowledge. So the choshen sometimes relying on a oracle, relying on just someone to give you an answer, can sometimes be a snake. It's giving you the wrong answer. The Choshen itself in the, in, the, in the Holy Temple did give you the right answer. But when people today try to find their own Choshen, they try to find some oracle that will give them the answer. You find some brilliant person who has all the answers and can predict exactly what's going to happen and tells you the future. Don't pay attention to them. They're a Nachash, right? They could be a snake. Right? They have it all right until they get it wrong. Right? The person who predicted every bear and bull market for the last 50 years, except they're going to miss the next one because nobody gets it all right. right. Nobody can get it all right. So, um, so it's important to remember that it's the nachash, it's the snake. We have to find on our own, dig into the Torah 
to find that the other way to find the Choshen that gives us the accurate and true advice. To look into the Torah to be able to find the real advice that we need in order to um, in order to really succeed and make the right decisions. We're told also in Kabbalah that the word Choshen, Choshen has the same is Chet Shin Nun has the every letter in Hebrew has a number value gematria. Chet is eight, Shin is three hundred, Nun is fifty. Together making three fifty-eight, and that is the same gematria, the same number value as Mashiach. When Mashiach comes, we will once again have the Choshen, where God will tell us everything what to do. We won't have to figure it out on our own. We'll just have this breastplate that will tell us what to do. But for now, during the times of exile, God says, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not, I don't have an easy way. We just stand up and say, what should I do? And the answer just comes. We don't have that today. Today, in the times of exile, God says, I'm making you figure it out yourselves. But that doesn't mean you should just jump into it. Say, this is what I'm going to do because... That's how I woke up and decided what I'm going to do. It's something that you have to follow the Torah's directions and follow the Torah's advice. And a person can never make decisions on their own. The Mishnah says, never make decisions yourself. Because people make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. You make a decision yourself, you're going to make mistakes. You always have to ask advice from other people for every major decision. You've got to have other people that you turn to and ask advice from. But then it is up to us, particularly people who are knowledgeable in Torah and know what the Torah's advice would be in a particular situation, as well as if it's, say, a medical or financial or some other situation that there's a particular expert, you've got to ask the experts that have knowledge in that field. Don't trust them 100%. Ask multiple, but you've got to ask the experts. But ultimately, we have to make our own decisions during a time of exile. It is up to us to figure out what God wants of us to make the right decisions. And then when Moshiach comes, we go back to the way it used to be in the days of Moses in the first temple where God can answer our decisions for us.